Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Alright, I'm um, here with Paul again. This is kind of doing double duty for us as a, um, as a podcast and also an introductory uh, piece for the class. But for those of you that listen to the podcast that may not know, Plowshares Bible Institute is our attempt to share what we're doing at Plowshares in a way that people can come and take classes and and learn more about our peaceful understanding of what Christianity is about. The class that we're we're preparing is uh, THE 315 Imaginative Apologetics. In the class, we're going to be looking at some of the classic arguments, hopefully not spending too much time on them, but it'll probably be important to know what they are and to try to have a handle on them because we want to deconstruct them a little bit and reconstruct what or construct what we think a reshaping of the imagination looks like and show how that affects the way we think now. The 19th. That is correct, yes. That is what we said, yeah, the 19th. But we've hit on a, a, a sort of a category of this when we talked about theodicies, theodicies being a sort of answer to the question, well, if God exists um, and he's all good, then how could there be evil in the world? Well, that's actually part of a much larger larger set of questions, and uh, one that Paul's done a lot of work in and coached me a lot in, and that is the problem of evil itself. Um, what is evil, and what is its ontological uh, sta- status? Um, is there such a thing as evil, or, and, and Paul talked about privation theory in the last uh, session, is it is it just sort of the absence of good? And I think what Paul's going to get at here, and hopefully I can help a little bit, I will admit, it's been a, it was a long weekend, so I'm hoping to be able to contribute some. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit and nod at Paul and just say, yeah, whatever you say, um, which is normal. Um, but really, the privation theory, what we're getting at is, is a big question, and we're ultimately getting at I think, again, everything's going to boil down to a central problem uh, of trying to do something we're not really designed to do. We're not really, that is really outside of the scope. The problem of evil, uh, in a nutshell, isn't that there's evil uh, in Christian theology and what we consider good Christian theology. The problem of evil is what has God done about evil? Right. Not right. how do we justify evil's existence and God, and that question. I and, and I'm trying to sort of throw this in there, and sort of as a sort of uh, thesis statement to what we're getting at. But that question is founded on wrong thinking uh, about atonement and about what this whole thing is really about in the first place. So get at it. We're going to hit stuff like C.S. Lewis and some of the other biggies that have done sort of moral arguments. So, Paul, introduce your ideas about the moral argument for us. I'm trying to do several things. We've done, you know, throughout, we're not, what we're not doing is going through and say, okay, here's this argument and here's the problem with the argument. The moral argument, what we're about to do, is do sort of what we've done with Anselm. That is, here is Anselm's argument, and the way that we conclude is is to say, oh, this is a despicable notion of (laughs) what atonement is, and in fact is illustrative of sin. Mm -hmm. We can do the same thing then with the moral argument, but we do need to, we need to get straight on some terms. We'll talk about privation. You know, the big discussion right now is between privation theory, and there would be forms of privation theory. Some would say that privation theory is itself used as a kind of theodicy, and I think it has to say, well, it's not really anything. Uh, so, are, can, so, let's, so that privation theory is a theodicy in that you're saying there is no such thing as evil. Evil is just a, a f- lesser form of good or a and the absence of good or less good so therefore we don't have to acknowledge you know there's god who's good and then there's not god which is not good and really all the moral arguments are going to break down to moral arguments will break down to 
well, we know there's got to be some moral law. We see, we see some moral law at play, so that has to have come from somebody. So the relationship to that argument and privation theory, how, what is the relationship to that argument and privation theory? Well, what, what is happening in radical evil, and this is the other topic, is the opposite of privation. And that would right. be, in radical evil, people would say that evil has an ontological ground or it has a substance or it's really, you know, even in human will, the idea that uh, in privation theory, at least in forms of it, that there is an incapacity of the will, an incapacity to do the good. And in radical evil, what you would say is no, and you know, actually people can will to do the evil. And there are uh, diabolical, either, you know, either they're diabolical people, or there's a diabolical person like Satan. Now, the interesting thing is that it's Immanuel Kant who coins the term radical evil. And he will coin it, and he will reject it. You know, the idea in Kant is that he's, he's going to decide that can't be a possibility. But uh, recently, Slavoj Zizek, Olenka Zupanichek, she's written a whole book on it, have picked up on this notion of radical evil. And they're, most all of these people are atheists. And so when they're talking about radical evil, they really believe that in some way we're getting at the ground of things. As with other things, I'm not just wanting to throw these things out here as, oh, here's some interesting theories. I do believe that in the end, privation theory, in other words, something like that, I believe has to be the case, but that's really beside the point in deciding, because with radical evil, I also think that there is the possibility that people would live their life, structure their understanding in such a way that radical evil or something like radical evil, that is that the human will in some way is self-determining is really what you're there. And so I, I'm going to propose the idea that radical evil is the lie of sin that is undone by Christ and the moral argument for God is itself a kind of demonstration of how this lie can function. Now, I'm not doing several things here. I'm not necessarily, I, I, at the end of this, we'll talk about, you know, what is the status then of a moral argument, but at least as we have it in Kant, and maybe even in C.S. Lewis's form of the moral argument, those may be the most famous forms of the moral argument. What I want to do or what I want to show is that what actually happens in a Kantian understanding with the moral argument is that you end up with the potential, and not just the potential, that historically, I believe that a Kantian understanding is directly connected to the one instance historically that probably most people would say if there were radical evil, it was in the Holocaust. And so we have good Germans who are going to quote Kant and the Kantian categorical imperative as their justification in doing what they've done. So this is not simply a theoretical discussion, but I'm saying that, oh, the, again, as with Anselm, this philosophical understanding has expressed itself in a horrific, you know, uh, that it's had horrific consequences. And so my hope is that we can bring that together and we can use then this discussion for what Christianity is really about rather than get lost in these arguments. So are you arguing that the idea of radical evil is that there is such a thing as evil. It exists as its own thing, uh, as opposed to it's just an absence or a, 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 an inability to do good. Are you arguing that the Holocaust is actually people arguing from, that people can argue to an evil conclusion from any set of, of uh, assumptions, whether they're actually innocent of that evil, innocent is probably not the right term, where they're actually benign of that evil from the be from the get-go, 
that you can end up arguing towards some evil, sort of a, you know, we have to do evil that good can come out of it kind of approach. Yeah, and, and you know, with the case of Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, and this is actually where these terms get employed by Hannah Arendt, that she's going to use two different ways that seem to be a kind of contradiction. She's going to talk about, you know, when she went to the trial, she was expecting to find there uh, was the... Yeah a kind of uh, diabolical individual in Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. What she ends up finding is what she will refer to as kind of a banal, idiotic person incapable of moral thought. And so she coins the term, the banality of evil. But she doesn't notice that the two things, she also then talks about radical evil. Here's radical evil. And here's the banality of evil. And this is kind of what got me to thinking uh, along these lines. And that is that uh, I, I think that the contradiction that she misses is, in fact, quite, I, I think that if you were to find radical evil, it would be in Hitler's minions like Eichmann. The reality of what is there, it is a, a kind of uh, incapacity. But of course, they're, they're working within this understanding uh, of the Kantian. So Eichmann on trial will quote the Kantian categorical imperative. Do you know the Kantian categorical imperative? Yeah, I'm familiar with, with but again, it's late. <laughs> Hit uh, me. You would only do that which you would will to be done universally. It's a sort of take on the uh, golden rule. Seemingly, seemingly. Uh, a sort uh, of an, his improvement on the golden rule, maybe. First of all, he's giving us a, 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 the understanding. It, we could combine the two things here, that Kant has an understanding in his, uh, what we might call his moral argument. It's not really a great moral argument, but the greatest good is that all men have happiness in harmony with duty. And so duty is going to be key. To Kant, and that if a man does his duty, then he's good. And so all men are going to strive to realize the greatest good. They'll do this by doing their duty. Well, what is their duty? Well, we understand their duty is in and through the categorical imperative, that I would do that which I would will to be done universally. There's several problems with this that and this is kind of the problem even with C.S. Lewis's notion of the, the moral argument. There's really no, we don't, we don't know what the content of this is. And of course, historically, that's precisely what's going to happen yeah. with, uh, with somebody like Eichmann, but also even in a Kantian understanding, he's really going to take a, a case. Somebody writes him a letter and says, well, what about, you know, if you, Kant says, these are absolute rules, and one of the absolute laws, do your duty, is you would never lie. Well, what about if uh, a good man is being chased by bad people, he's hiding in your house, you can never break the rule. So that to act rightly is to act from a purely good will, so that no matter what, you would understand what the right is, and you would act rightly. Uh, there's a couple things I, I want to throw in there. One is that that's, I, I see this a lot happening. I don't mean to be derogative, but in sort of flaky forms of progressive Christianity, where there's this sort of emphasis on the whole thing really just boils down to love that, you know, if you, we must love one another. And I think Hauerwas's um, critique of that, which, you know, is not, even even for Hauerwas is pretty simple, is, well, but we don't know how to love rightly, you know. We're ready to throw out scripture and, and just substitute it with love. But, you know, what is love if if you don't go into a little detail to des to describe, you know, what, what its foundation is and what the goal of it is? It's the same, I'm, I'm asking the same thing of Kant with duty. I'm sure he can go on and on about what duty is, but ultimately saying there's duty or truth-telling, you know, these things seem seem fairly ungrounded in and of themselves. 
I think that's the problem, is that they're totally ungrounded, that you're going to tell the truth for the truth's sake. You know, he gives a couple of the illustrations are kind of interesting. He gives the illustration of the man that, you know, commits adultery. Uh, well, what if they would build a gallows outside of his house? And he knew that the morning after, that as a result of his adulterous act, he would be hung by the neck. He asked, would that have any influence upon his decision? I'm, I'm using this illustration, of course, he thinks this is the role of the law. The law is to prompt us to do the good. Slavoj Zizek takes that illustration, and he says, you know that some people cannot en enjoy a night of pleasure without knowing uh, that in the morning that their very life is required. Uh, and that's, in other words, that this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, knowing that these things deserve death, they do them anyway. And Zizek's point is, yes, and that's part of the pleasure of it. That's part of, in other words, the transgressive nature of the act is part of the pleasure. Making it more forbidden is what makes it more attractive. We get this in the AIDS epidemic. The people committing, you know, pr profligate homosexual acts and gaining, getting AIDS. It's not that they, for a period, they understood that's exactly what they were doing. This was kind of even Michel Foucault, who was a homosexual. His point is, well, yes, but this is a, a way of deconstructing our identity. That is that you're dealing in death, and one way of deconstructing your identity is then to put your life on the line that it is a, a, a means of, of undoing the self. Can I backtrack a little bit then in the discussion on privation and radical evil? Uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, we're looking at um, Eichmann and saying, so, you know, here's a guy who can calmly, coolly, stupidly rationalize doing horrible things based on Kant's categorical imperative. And I'm just going to, um, without hopefully taking us off track too much, um, I'll just open up a little bit about my history um, in an abusive home. And I, I've shared this with you before, so I hope uh, I hope this isn't shocking for you. Uh, but um, I had uh, major food texture issues as a child. I still do. And I've gotten over most of them, but it's still there. I'm a very picky eater. But my father, his response to that was he he never cared why i would try to eat certain foods in this uh cooked cooked vegetables were really hard for me um the smell and the texture and the and the flavor i would try to eat it and i would just gag just gag i probably could do it now that's <laughs> don't but his response was to get frustrated and um, for a long time uh, to hold as a child, as a toddler, to hold me down and put food in my mouth, force it in my mouth and close my nose and close my mouth and sometimes work my jaws with his big hands until I would vomit in, in his hand. And sometimes he was physically abusive. Sometimes he would hit me. Sometimes he would, um, he would always yell. And um, most of my uh, childhood if he wasn't doing that, he was, he'd just give up. And then I still couldn't make myself eat a lot of nights and I would go without food. I went to bed hungry more times than I can count. By the time I got to high school, I was allowed to make my own food for myself. But when I would eat it, I faced shaming, constant shaming. I was a late bloomer. He would pick up my arm, which was small. I was, I just took forever to, to grow. And one day he yelled at me, you're pathetic. And he threw my arm down on the table and left the house. And I, I sailed this, not, not for pity, but to say, this was my life. So I would walk up the stairs and with my head hung, talk, thinking about how horrible a person I was. After a lot of therapy, I got through all that and figured out what that meant and why, why that affected all my decisions as a young adult. When I was marrying Vangie um, and, and my father and I at the time, my father's family and I were not speaking, but we were trying to make a, a inroads. And I said, I'll be honest with you, Dad, I'd, I'd like to invite you to my wedding, but I, I, think, I think now what I'd really like is for us to have a conversation about what happened when I was a kid and for us to acknowledge what happened. 
wasn't asking for anything other than acknowledgement that that had hurt. And he was at the beginning of Alzheimer's, so I don't know how lucid his thoughts were. But I think he was saying things he always thought, and he always thought he was doing the best for me. That, and he, he, he told me he was just trying to get me to eat good food so that I didn't die, so I didn't waste away to nothing. Now, I'm overweight, so it's, I'm, not, I'm not wasting away to nothing. In truth, there was never in his mind, and my mother and I have discussed this at length, there was never in his mind an actual will to do something good. That was a justification for his hatred and his, his lack of empathy for me so when when you say and and i'm totally i'm totally willing to be on board with you but when you say i think you know, privation theory i say i feel like i've experienced radical evil yeah and that's part of my point here with this is that radical evil is a human reality okay in other words because the way that we talk about privation it's like if you're in the presence of this thing, the closer you are to evil, the less power it would have in a, some understandings of privation. Of course, we know just the opposite is the case, that the closer we come to evil, the more power that in fact is exercised by people. Yeah. Yeah. That power is in fact a direct exercise of yeah. a form of evil. Power. Yeah, it is a power and it is a, a, a destructive power. And so I'm glad you described that because that's what I'm afraid is missing in forms of privation theory. I think we just need to acknowledge, in other words, that this is a reality for us. That is yeah. that this human reality of radical evil, people that are given over, why did he do it? Or why does someone do evil? Why did Eichmann do what he did? Well, I, I, I think I, I've had to conclude, and I don't know. That's part of the, we can never know. I, it, this is what I think Jesus meant when he talked about, you know, uh, you best deal with a log in your own eye before you go work in somebody. I don't think he was saying, you know, your sin is a log and theirs is a speck. But when it's in your own eye, it definitely feels like a log. <laughs> yeah. And and it's we can't hardly get, through our own stuff to pick out what somebody else. I, I, I do think that there is a given overness or a brokenness that happens in, in a person's mind or their brain or their thought patterns or their neural pa pathways that can contribute to it. So there's a mix of it, right? I mean, there's a choice, there's a misunderstanding, but there's also a brokenness that can happen. This is probably off track where you wanted to go. It's just that if you're going to talk about evil, it's the easy thing to do is to back away from it and talk about it as an abstract theory rather than the reality that confronts us on a regular basis. And when you've had to deal with it, 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 has, um, it has far more personal uh, meaning to it. Yeah, and that, I, I, this is where I, I would like to read a quote to you that kind of gets at this. This is uh, from Alenka Zupanacek, and this may hit upon what you're describing. The Freudian blow to philosophical ethics can be summarized as follows. What philosophy calls the moral law, and more precisely what Kant calls the categorical imperative, is in fact nothing other than the superego. This judgment provokes an effect of disenchantment that calls into question any attempt to base ethics on foundations other than the pathological. Insofar as it has its own origins in the constitution of the superego, ethics becomes nothing more than a convenient tool for any ideology which may try to pass off its own commandments as the truly authentic, spontaneous, and honorable inclinations of the subject. Now, I don't know if that resonated with you, but what I'm saying here yeah. is that our morality is our immorality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hit that really good, because I, I was looking at that slide, and I went, yeah, I think 
that that really gets at it. I mean, immoral morality that's not founded on that's not founded like what we're talking about is going to have to be founded on some kind of pathology, whatever broken thing is going on in your head. Um, and I think I think we can talk about this in direct biblical terms. I think this is what Paul is describing, but we can talk about it uh, simultaneously. I think it's a sickness, that what Paul is describing is the human sickness. And this human sickness is an orientation to the law, but I'm always afraid to use the term law here because actually what you've described or what, you know, the, the, what uh, Eichmann is doing, that understand that, that the law becomes something quite perverse in our orientation to it. And this is what Freud means by the superego. That is that in the Bible, evil is defined as a lie. You know, human evil is a lie in regard to the law. That's the source of evil. Think of the fall of man, but in any instance, it's called a covenant with death. And the idea is that there is life being to be had, you know, and, and what that is for someone, you know, that they imagine that they can gain the essence of things through the law, or through their morality. That, mm -hmm. And so I think that's the idea is that, that evil has a grip on us not because of a universal moral law, but because we imagine we have a universal moral law that we can access through just a kind of basic reason. Your dad was sick. You know, he needed help. He, you needed an intervention in your life. Eichmann was sick. He was an yeah. evil individual. Somebody yeah. needed to intervene in that. I think this is what Christ is supposed to be doing. That's the idea of an apocalyptic breaking in. That is human morality. Yeah. And I just mean, I, I mean what we often mean by that, that think of the laws of the land or the enforcement of those laws. Yeah. In some way, it, it is the source of war, of violence on a national level but it is also on a personal level, yeah. the very impetus behind the worst forms of evil that yeah. people are people committed. This is why religion is so dangerous because yeah. it can be twisted and people imagine it's their religious duty to, to do, do what, to do to evil, hurt, to, do, to hurt yeah, people. Yeah. To hurt people. In fact, my father um, was so convinced of his the righteousness of his cause in my life that on a regular basis, I was his go-to sermon illustration for the problem of sin. That oh, um, man. oh man! So I was I was in the front row of the church, being described as being unable to eat good food or. Uh, I would eat a certain food for a while till I'd get tired of it. And it was the food that I could handle at the time. I think I might've been on the spectrum somewhere. Um, maybe I still am. I, I think we're all on the spectrum, ASD spectrum somewhere. But um, when I would get tired of it, he would explain that I had gotten sick of it. And that was, you know, when you get, you get in sin and you get sick of it. So I, I again, not to draw attention up, but just to say, that yeah, everything you're saying about the that this gets this is a problem of religion. I think it's one of the things Jesus was. It was one of the things he got the most on fire about was uh, battling that that the use of religion with which to justify hurting people was one of the most nefarious effects of the problem you're you're describing. The moral law, the moral argument. I think what people have done with the law, it's a reification of a perverse sense of duty that gives rise to evil. And it has nothing to do with life in the way that Christianity, life and love, means it. And this is sort of, you know, this is Jesus, but I think this is Jacques Lacan, that the moral law is simply desire. It is, you know, in some way your father was living out some sort of a perverse desire. Yeah, Eichmann so. was living out some sort yeah. of perverse desire. Evil people are committed to their evil, and they'll justify it. But there actually there is some sort of perverse gratification 
that is certainly not life. It's in fact the opposite of life. It's the opposite of enjoyment. It is a departure from life. It is what is the death drive in psychoanalysis. But I think that this duty, you know, that Kant is describing, I, I think that it is the what Paul is describing as the duty of the body of death, of giving self one over to this body of death. The interesting thing about all of this, we can spell it out psychoanalytically, but the philosophy here is such a beautiful, wonderful illustration of the evil. In other words, I think, again, we can see how people have gone wrong with their ethics, that their moral law puts death in circulation, in literal death penalty sort of thing, or in the relationship you had to your father. There is this kind of thing, you know, that they imagine, you know, what is the perversity there? You imagine that there's something that is in excess of the law. You're going to get behind it, that in some way you obtain the object petite A and, you know, that, that thing that would give you being. It's idolatrous. It's a, a, an idolatrous exponential desire. Those arguments seem, they strike me as different from the sort of classic C.S. Lewis moral argument that, well, we've got moral absolutes that everybody seems to understand, and so therefore we've got these moral absolutes, so there must be a moral lawgiver, because that couldn't possibly come from us. You know, everybody seems to understand that murder is wrong, although it's not 100% clear to me that everybody understands. It's the murder. Oh, I don't seem to. <laughs> but um, I, we can, again, we can sort of collapse back into, yeah, but we're not all sure what murder is in the first place. What, what's the relationship of that, that argument, that approach to the moral argument? Is it the same argument? Is it? Uh, oh, it's exactly that argument. Okay. I'll give you a categorical imperative of evil. This is the Marquis de Sade. I don't know if you know, this is where we get the word sadism. He was a sadist. He enjoyed hurting people. And he takes the Kantian categorical imperative in one of his novels, but literally de Sade is going to live this out. He says, with regard to the crime of destroying one's fellow, be persuaded it is purely hallucinatory. Man has not been accorded the power to destroy. He has at best the capacity to alter forms. What difference does it make to her creative hand if this mass of flesh today is reproduced tomorrow in the guise of a handful of centipedes? This is the law of universal metamorphosis. The universal principle is that everyone should pleasure themselves. They should pleasure themselves to the ultimate extent, including murder. That is, you know, his categorical imperative turned on its head. He literally did it. Uh, you know, the Nazis, they weren't knowingly turning it on its head. I mean, we can see that they were. But the Marquis de Sade says, yes, this is my categorical imperative. I feel like it, it is the way evil seems to work out in the world. The, the Marquis de Sade is an example of sort of the most extreme uh, expression of that. And yet, when you see evil working out, it's not hard in your own life. In my own life, when I, when I can look and say, yeah, that was evil. I'm talking about my own actions and, and the actions of other people I've known. I think that the pleasure part of it, it emerges. Maybe that for most of us, we hate to admit that because it, we, we recognize the pleasure we take in pain, either the pain of other people or the pain of ourselves. And it's such a horrific thing that we immediately withdraw from it in the way that Kant withdrew from the very concept of radical evil. But I think in some way, we understand we're twisted. There's something twisted in the human heart. That's our problem. I, I think, again, if we understand we don't have access to a moral law, but we imagine that we do. And we imagine that this access, this absolute duty, uh, is one that you know, should control our every decision. 
on either side of this. You know, there's pleasure to be had on either side of the law, the transgressive pleasure of breaking the law or the pharisaical pleasure of using the law to in some way punish and hurt other people. We've all seen the Pharisee who takes his pleasure in the power that he can exercise in all good conscience. You know, because it is in the law is on his side, because he can do it without, you know, he can hurt people. And you can almost just see the pleasure in people. Think of the Nazi, you know, guards that you think they didn't enjoy their work. Well, I mean, I think the 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 stories we see now about acts of violence. Um, I just read an article recently about the Breonna Taylor shooting, and it, as it turns out, um, it's not a few stray shots, but the actual report and the images show that police were firing into that house from all sides of the house or the apartment and that it was a bloodbath. I certainly don't know enough about to say, oh, well, they were laughing and enjoying it. But certainly we, we see enough pictures of people doing evil and especially when power, is, I mean, I, it, like you said earlier, power is always involved. And at the, at the best in some of these pictures and images, the, the attitude is nonchalant. Maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but in your presentation here, you've kind of closed with Bonhoeffer's conclusions about you're saying that we imagine we have a handle on this categorical imperative or this moral law. See it for C.S. Lewis, it, for Kant, it's a categorical imperative. For C.S. Lewis, there's a moral law in our heart that was placed there by somebody, and that somebody was God. Again, defining that moral law, it, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be expressed the same way in every person, uh, or it does. Bonhoeffer said that 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 idea is itself the fall. That is, that is a description of eating from a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That you saying you know good and evil is the initial problem. That's the original sin. But when man becomes the arbiter of his own ethics, this is a sign of the fall. Yeah. I think that that's what the human sickness is a human religion in as much as it's caught up in notions of morality. You know, most religion is really about some sort of law-keeping. Mm -hmm. And the law-keeping becomes a kind of perversity. This is really, you know, Christianity is over and against that. There is the law of love, but that is over and against the law of sin and death. And, of course, the Mosaic law just plays into that because it's a sign of man's moral failure, his incapacity for love. In other words, again, what we're describing is a kind of need for an apocalyptic breaking into this. We're sick. Human society is sick, and human individuals are sick, and they're sick and drunk on what we call morality. <laughs> and I think what we need is an exposure of our immorality is our morality. So the story then of Christianity, uh, uh, when it comes to morality, is not, look, there's morals, so therefore there's God. The story is, look, there's something we're calling morals, and look how it's destroying us. And Jesus is God who has come, who has acted within this world, who has broken in to this world, and expose that evil for what it is by not ever doing it, by t turning all those morals, the moral law, the religious law on its head and experiencing the worst that that has to give and defeating it and calling us to follow him in on that way. So the moral argument is completely undone unless you're thinking that Jesus comes to fulfill this broken moral system in order to help us meet it, which is uh, the kind of atonement, again, we're back always back to atonement theology, uh, 
But that's always the, the model of atonement we're trying to break down and say, no, we don't think this is what the New Testament's doing at all. Jesus didn't come to satisfy a moral imperative because we couldn't. He came to expose that moral that morality for what it was as violent, cruel, abusive, hateful, uh, deluded. And by doing love, by doing peace, and experiencing the cross, he exposes that evil, all of that evil, all at once, and then um, calls us to to abandon that morality to follow him. I don't know if I'm capturing that well enough or taking us a different direction, but I feel like that's the, the actual apologetic for morality is a story about what Jesus is actually doing. In my father's example, again, there's people that have suffered worse. So I hate using this story, but it was personal and it seemed to fit. But he, he never understood. He, he may have thought he was doing what he was doing out of love, but he never understood the self-denying love of Christ. And I can't say that I always understand it either, but he, he never quite he never quite understood that. And without that self-denying love, whatever morality you claim to do is always going to be causing harm to somebody because it's going to be founded in some deep <laughs> broken problem uh, within. Yeah, if you're doing violence and hurting other people, that's not good. I think that shouldn't be any great mystery. But for some reason, that's the most difficult thing for us to recognize. Just the simple idea. I, we just did the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing complicated in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Turn the other cheek. Give the, the cloak as well as the coat. Go the second mile. Because we are simply geared the other way, and our law is geared. Our morality is geared to, in some way, justify hurting other people. And we can then take pleasure in that pain. Yeah. You know, that can also be very masochistic. You know, the illustration I used there, I won't spell it all out, but was Yukio Mishima. Yes, who, yes, talk about that, yes. Well, he, he's very enlightening in this. Because he actually explains this in a book. It's, it's not a fictional work. It's called uh, Sun and Shield, I think. But he's explaining why he is doing bodybuilding, why he forms a kind of little militaristic group, why he's restore. you know, he wants to restore the emperor. It's all a facade. All of his life, he's been in pain. He's a writer, and he, you know, his father never approved of his writing, and uh, he felt it was this kind of a feminine thing, and it's kind of eating away at him. And so he hits upon the Kantian notion. I don't know if he actually read Kant, but boy, it sure sounds like it. Mm -hmm. He hits upon the idea of doing his duty and being able to die doing his duty. The whole thing is really, he explains, is an excuse to commit seppuku, which suicide. is a, it's a ritual suicide. You know, he gives, he gets his army together, they go and they go to the self-defense forces building and they tie up uh, General Yam Yamashita and then he goes out. You can actually see this on YouTube. Uh, you, he's giving this speech out on the roof down to the self-defense forces. They're laughing at him. They think he's a ridiculous figure. Mm. And the news helicopters are flying over, so he really can't. Nobody's really. And then he goes in, and he drives the short sword into his belly in ritual seppuku. You, know, you have the double, and he does, goes back and forth. I don't know how far he got, but the, in the ritual, you're able to take your guts out and lay them on a platter. And then when, they, when you do that, the second is supposed to behead you. But of course, they weren't real samurai, and his second wasn't really trained in that. And he had to whack at his head before he could get it off. But you can go in an old look magazine and see his head there sitting next to his torso. And they had his funeral. And his mother said, don't, don't worry about Yukio. This is something, he finally did something that he wanted to do. In other words, here was a tortured soul who actually tells us what it meant to do his duty. He was doing his duty in, in, a, in the way that 
I think Zizek and Lacan are describing, not because he wanted to live and have life, because he really desired death. Yeah. And it gave him a, uh, a really a, an excuse, a drive, a death drive. Maybe you said it sounds like he's read Kant. Um, maybe, maybe what we're seeing is that the immoral moral imperative is built in. That it's it's a symptom of a species-wide problem. That we're not just uh, it's not just tied to one philosophical perspective or one time period or one nationality. That this is always. This, this self-destruction and sadomasochistic destruction is the thing that Jesus has come to undo, but it is inherently the problem. And, and essentially, the moral argument, the, the classic moral arguments, are part of that problem. I think that's it. Again, we're saying natural theology. I'm not saying it always has done this, but for I think that we're hitting a lot of uses of it. It's played a highly destructive role. Yeah. So, is there anything you want to add on to that? If you're uh, interested in the class, uh, we're maybe going to start. <laughs> I think we're going to start. The 19th is what we're is what our plan is. So we'll have enough. We'll have enough to to go for the 19th. You found some readings. Yeah, we're doing a lot of. I wouldn't call it primary reading, but we never found a book we were that in love with um we found some good books but aren't quite doing what what we're doing which isn't anything terribly new but nobody's um, doing what we're doing it's <laughs> just why we're so popular <laughs> yes. yes so um we're referring to a lot of resources um um, those are usually fairly lengthy. At least uh, the nice thing about some of these resources, they give decent outlines that you can hit on specific ideas and get sort of snapshots of specific ideas or, or people. Um, and we're hoping, I think we're hoping that that's going to end up giving us enough ground to understand how the story of Jesus is different from these from these classical arguments. So again, like you said, we're not trying to completely dismiss all of the classical arguments, but are trying to look at them and saying where do they come from and what's the what is being argued here. Even in in my conservative theological education at Central and at Lincoln, when we did apologetics, um, my conservative faculty were always wise enough to say you know these these arguments never quite get you there i mean at the best even if you're coming at it from the assumption that this is a pretty good argument it never quite gets you there anyhow and so uh, from an apologetic perspective the story of jesus and a changing of the way we look at the world uh, changing of the way we think about things is inherently what the gospel is trying to do rather than logically trying to rationalize through broken thinking why this thing is true before you ever accept it. I think one of the readings you had is from Richard Swinburne. And I think he's a wonderfully despicable example <laughs> that we should use because he gives us <laughs> the soul-making argument. Yeah. I think he lays it out actually in mathematical percentages. You know, how much evil and that we need this evil to make better souls. And that's, of course, a kind of learning activity. Evil is a learning activity. And, and it's almost like you can begin, begin to see the shine of the devil in some of these arguments. Uh, <laughs> I feel that with Kant, that actually the argument itself, like with Anselm, it reproduces the evil. Well, I mean, the soul-making theodicy in itself is that God is using this with which to turn you into a better person. Uh, so either God's letting it happen to you or you're, he's doing it to you. And in, in that way, it is his plan for you to go through this because you need this evil to turn you into something better. My argument seems, my counter-argument, I suppose, is... I feel like the more brokenness we do to to one another, the more we break one another, the more it seems to cause brokenness. And I don't see Jesus running around doing a bunch of evil to people to try to turn them into better people. In fact, Jesus seems to think that God really wants to feed people 
what kind of father, when his kid asks for a, a fish, gives him a snake? Or what kind of father, when his kid asks him for a sandwich, gives him a rock? You know, that's not God. <laughs> Um, that again is the classic C.S. Lewis soul-making theodicy. These answers don't quite. Uh, it, it's trying to say, well, how can God be good and and allow evil? Well, He must be using the evil. Well, the the answer to how can God be good and there be evil is God suffers evil too, and God is doing something about the evil. Why does evil exist? It does. What did God do about it? He suffered it with us, and He defeated it can't always say everything and and of course that's the temptation is i as we're talking about this i think howard is very interesting in this because his whole point about ethics and the idea of a virtue ethics and the idea of a corporate understanding of course that's what we didn't say in all this that this idea of the duty and the will were again were folded into an individual and his point is well a a, a community based on a falsehood cannot possibly be ethical and that's the the whole point in scripture is that there is a refounding of a community of people the ethics does not operate individually but it in, operates corporately and then it affects the individual the law is not a law that exists apart from this corporate identity you know he, the whole thing with the ten commandments none of those commandments make sense outside of the role that God has played. You know, thou shall have no other gods before me. Oh, does that work with an Egyptian raw God? No, this is a, this is a very particular kind of understanding. So we can't say everything, but I, I think that this conversation uh, absolutely points to a completely reworked ethical understanding. Yeah, and that's, I think, what we're trying to get at in forging postures across the board and the Bible Institute on all the writings and all the and all the recordings and the classes. Essentially, this this is turning out to be a really interesting class just because um, you know we've done so many other things. I think we keep finding oh we're tying so much of what we've already done into this, but really working out our understanding of what the gospel is and finding out that um, it that there are logical conclusions <laughs> to to these questions or logical responses to these questions that very naturally flow out of a very specific understanding of what Jesus what Jesus means and what the kingdom of God is about juxtaposed to some of the things that we've uh, argued with argued against hopefully this has been helpful and if you really like it uh, you should try take you should imagine taking the course so we're going to be doing a lot of this Work the imagination to take imagination. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.